title of today's sermon is What an Entrance, and it's taken from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to guide us and direct us in our study this morning of his word. Father, we thank you for this time together when we focus on prayer and worship through song and through your written word. Help us, Lord, to comprehend it, to understand it, to apply it to our lives so that we might glorify our Savior. Help us to become your abundant living disciples, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us here would probably admit to enjoying the Hallmark Channel. After all, who can resist a young man chasing a beautiful young maiden to the altar? We watch as they do that mating dance for about an hour and a half, and then it ends with the prototypical Hallmark wedding scene. It's always set at a beautiful venue and tastefully done. One of my very favorite scenes is when that beautiful bride floats down the long, winding staircase. What an entrance! However, in the real world, it doesn't always turn out as planned. Watch the following. Lights. or maybe at the Justice of the Peace, we want to smirk and grin at such a memorable turn of events. Instead of tears of joy running down the bride's face, we can imagine tears of humiliation and hurt. However, most of us do dream of making a grand entrance on some occasion. We'd like to wow our guests at some important event that honors us, but it doesn't always turn out that way, does it? It seems the idea of making a grand entrance, however, didn't begin with weddings. Actually, it's been around for a long, long time and has a checkered past, if you, if you really look at it. It had its beginnings back in the days of Rome. After a glorious victory by the Roman legion, the successful general was honored with a triumphant entrance into the imperial city of Rome. He would lead the captured kings of the countries they've conquered or the nations that they've defeated, the generals that they've won a victory over with, and in the parade, the people of Rome would always cheer them on and adore them. Hollywood's captured the spirit of that in a couple of movies, such as Ben-Hur, but the best is the following clip that I'd like to show you. Today, we examine Jesus' glorious entrance into the city of Jerusalem, which can be seen against that backdrop we've just watched. Of course, that's Hollywood, but you get the picture. He will come not to offer himself as the conquering king, defeating the enemies. He will come to offer himself as 
the humble king of Israel. This event, of course, will immediately precede his passion. This event is commonly called by theologians the triumphal entry, but you probably know it as Palm Sunday. This begins the final movements in the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus that will conclude with the cross and the empty tomb. This event will raise the expectations of all those involved in following him and will bring about an ultimate conflict between good and evil. This is a much different tone that has been set in the past ministry of Jesus in his public events. At those times, Jesus taught and did the miraculous, but he always told the people not to go and tell others. He played down his public displays and asked the participants to keep it to themselves. So this event functions as Jesus' official coming out to the nation of Israel as he makes a pro-offer of himself to be their king. He 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 declares himself through this entrance to be the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. Now, we've seen this in the past. The direct descendants of David had always offered themselves in this way to take the throne. But Jesus, previously to this in his ministry in the Galilee, had not been vocal about his lineage, his right to the divinic throne, and in fact, he had spent most of his ministry in the rural areas around the Sea of Galilee, the Galilean ministry, as it's called. Now he has set his face, he is moving towards Jerusalem, as we have seen in the past several weeks. He's going there to meet his fate, not as the king of Israel, but as the Lamb of God. To be clear, Matthew doesn't record many of the events that are found in Luke and Mark, and John, as Jesus has left Jericho, that's where we left him last week, and he has now arrived in the suburbs, if you will, of Jerusalem. Some events occurred along that road, but Matthew chose not to include them. It didn't fit his purpose in writing to the Jewish people, so he leaves those events out of his narrative. Matthew is writing to the Jews who are expecting a Messiah, a king, We now examine his journey, the journey of the king to meet his destiny on the cross, beginning in chapter 21. If you turn there with me, we pick up with verse 1. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find this text on page 981. The journey of the king. We read there, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Let me stop there for just a moment. Uh, You'll recall that the Lord had told the 12 disciples that upon his arrival in Jerusalem, he'd suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be condemned to death and killed by the Gentiles, the Roman authorities. He would be crucified. His disciples rejected this kind of talk as being out of hand. They completely missed the point, though, that Jesus concluded with all of those warnings, and, was, and that was that he would be raised to life on the third day. Now, behind me, you can see the travels that he has made. Jesus has left Caesarea, Philippi, which is at the top of the map, down to Capernaum. He's traveled 
through above Samaria, across the Jordan River into Perea, south to Jericho, which is not pictured, but as soon as he crossed the river there, uh, the Jordan River, he would have been at Jericho, and now he's made that 10-mile ascent to the city of Bethpage and its sister city, Bethany. They've walked 10 miles, basically straight uphill, for the elevation raises 3,400 feet. And when they arrive in Bethany, the home of his good friends Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, Jesus decides to spend the evening and enjoy the Sabbath with them. On the second map, you can see Bethany was about a mile away from Jerusalem. That's the red marker. And the Mount of Olives. And so all of the hustle and the bustle of the big city couldn't be heard from Bethany nor Bethpage, really, because it was blocked by the ridge on which the Mount of Olives lies. It was from that ridge, however, one could see down into the city of Jerusalem proper and the temple complex. So they've made their way from the Galilee, you can put up that other map, to the east side of the mountains, and they would enter in, and you can follow, um, it says on the very right to Bethany, if you follow that path down through the Kidron Valley, directly below it, and right to the wall, and that is where you enter into the city, and the Gihon Spring is located. So the next day, Sunday, the first day of the week for the Jew, early in the morning, they left Bethany, And they made their way near the village of Bethpage. Just before they reached the aforementioned ridge of the Mount of Olives, and before Jesus will descend into the Kidron Valley and make his way to the Gihon Spring, they stop. So let's examine this now. His entrance into Jerusalem by looking at verse 2. Jesus then sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, that would be Bethpage, where you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This strikes me as a bit odd. And it has raised a lot of questions for people as they read this text. Why would Jesus send two of his unnamed disciples on this mission to go and find this mother donkey and its baby, a colt or foil, for his use? This might have even seemed like a mundane task for the two disciples that were that were sent, but it was an essential mission in order for Jesus to accomplish his purposes in his entrance into the city. So they go, and they get the two animals, which are tied up in the city, and uh, if they happened to be questioned by someone there to say that the owner has needs of them, or the Lord has needs of them. Now, as you might know, a colt is the foil of a horse. However, if it is a male horse and a female donkey that mate, it produces what's called a hinny rather than a mule. So this foil, this offspring, is a colt or a hinny. This event is important to the Passion Week, so important that all four Gospels mention it and record it. But only Matthew mentions that both a donkey and a colt were tied up and brought to Jesus. Now there's a simple explanation for this. The colt, the foil of the donkey, the baby, which Luke reveals has never been ridden before, was needed for Jesus to ride. And so, having never been ridden before, the mother was brought along in order to calm 
the, the young colt as it was mounted for the first time. This was important theologically as well, as we will see in just a moment, for Jesus to accomplish his purposes. The Lord told them to go get this, the two animals, to untie them and bring them to himself. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately they will send them. Now, some folks like to read into the text something that's really not there. They assert that Jesus supernaturally, as the Lord, commands that these people sort of have a hand waved over them. You know, this, this is not the drones you're looking for kind of type thing. When actually the Lord there, which becomes his divine name for sure, after he's raised from the dead, but during these times you could use the term that is used here, curios, in three different manners. The, the uh, way it's used depends upon its context for the way that it's understood. Context is king, and it determines its usage. So the title Lord or curios could be certainly uh, re- referring to divinity, but more likely it's being used as it was commonly used during the day as master or as owner. And so we could translate this just as well and more properly, I think, is that the owner has need of them. Well, did Jesus own this donkey and foil? That's the question. Or were these two disciples just going up and grabbing two animals out of the thin air and and lying to them, saying the Lord has need of them? Well, how do we explain this? It could be that Jesus prearranged to purchase these animals from someone else. Or it could be that one of his rich supporters donated them for his use while he was in Jerusalem. That would explain why the owner has need for them. Jesus needed them to ride into the city. Now, he didn't need them to ride because he was tired. Okay? Jesus just walked 70 miles from Caesarea down to the city of Jerusalem. He didn't need the two animals to ride two more miles downhill. That brings us to the reason why he needed them. In the history of Israel, the riding of a donkey signified peaceful intentions by the king who rode it. Normally, if the king was riding off to war, he would ride a horse. Now, several times in scriptures, we find the kings riding horses into battle. They, rode, they would always ride at the head of the army and lead the armies to victory or loss, depending on what happened. But Israelite kings also possessed royal donkeys, and they were the only ones who ever rode those donkeys. It was the king's ride, his royal ride. So we learn in verse 4 that Jesus was riding an unridden colt, according to Luke, to enter into Jerusalem for the purpose of fulfilling prophecy. Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Well, who, what prophet wrote this? Where is it located? And what was the purpose of it? Well, as you know, there are many prophets, both major and minor. So Matthew quotes from two different prophets to put this statement together from the Old Testament. We read in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. 
So which prophecies does he quote here? Well, the first portion of the quote is directly taken from Isaiah 62.11, and then the rest of it, the last portion of it, is from Zechariah 9.9. The first portion is an allusion to what Isaiah says, but contains a major change, so it's more of an allusion than a direct quote. As we make the comparison of Matthew's quote to the original text, we note that it was taken from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Matthew begins by, by using the address of Isaiah to the contemporary Jews in Israel. Say to the daughter of Zion is what Isaiah wrote. And that is what he quotes here. Matthew begins this quote by omitting what Zechariah wrote in chapter 9.9. Zechariah said at the beginning of his quote of this text, O daughter of Zion, he changes it by grabbing from Isaiah, say to the daughter of Zion. So why does he replace that portion of Zechariah with the the portion of Isaiah that he quotes? Well, he's not addressing addressing one daughter in Zion, which uh, Zechariah seemed to be doing. He's speaking to all of them that are in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Zion is important because It's an exact location, but it's been lost in antiquity. We're not exactly sure where it was, where it is today. They knew where it was, but today it's disputed. And it has turned into, it has become an all-encompassing description of the nation of Israel. Hence, you've heard the Israelites called Zionists before. That's why. It's a hill in the city of Jerusalem. Not sure which one. However, the title is used by some wrongly. For example, Calvinists try to allegorize this title in making it a reference to, guess what? The church. Well, that cannot be, since the geographic location is not all over the earth, but in the city of Jerusalem. He also replaces the first portion of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly. He removes that, Matthew does, when he quotes Zechariah. So he writes to the daughters of Zion, the whole city, and then he takes out this, uh, this first part of the quote from Zechariah, rejoice greatly. Why would he do that? Well, again, we learn from Luke's account in chapter 19 that immediately preceding his entrance into Jerusalem, he weeps over the city and cries for it because it will be destroyed. Now, we know when that happened in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the city and the temple. Jesus is weeping over their future judgment because of their rejection of him. Matthew then will not take that portion of Zechariah, rejoice greatly because they're not going to rejoice, they're going to weep, and instead he goes on to the next portion of Zechariah 9.9. And he says there, um, Behold... Your king is coming to you. When's he coming? Right now. He's riding a colt, the foil of a donkey, into the city. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. So, the focus here is not on the impending judgment that will befall Israel in 70 AD because they do not receive Christ as the Messiah. This is the focus 
on the grace and the mercy of God that is offered to his people. He doesn't come as a conquering hero. He doesn't come as a warlord dragging the defeated kings behind him. How does he come? He comes gentle, mounted on a colt. Now that word gentle is an interesting one. The original Greek word is translated in many other texts as humble, and it is also translated in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, as the meek will inherit the earth. The humble will inherit the earth. The gentle will inherit the earth. So what we have here as we put this picture together is of a king who is gentle, humble, and meek entering into the city of Jerusalem to offer himself to be their king. This demonstrates his humble obedience to his heavenly father. His father has sent him on this mission to accomplish. Now, if we are to understand this text in its context, we must read the whole of the Word of God, not just Matthew. His readers would have understood this. The Jewish readers would have gotten this. For they not only read the Word, but they read the land. Most of us are blind to this in the church today. But they would have understood exactly what was going on because they knew other parts of the scriptures and they were able to read the land as well as the word. A colt, a colt was a symbol of peace, a donkey. A white horse, a symbol of war. This would remind anyone with any kind of familiarity with the Old Testament of another son of David. He too descended from the Mount of Olives, rode down through the Kidron Valley and to the Gihon Spring, and there he was made king of Israel. That, of course, was Solomon, who rode a royal donkey, was followed by a royal procession. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 1. Solomon, at his father's direction, comes to claim the throne from others who are seeking it by malice. He came in peace rather than seeking war. Now, if you've been in Bud's Sunday school class recently, you might have studied this text I'm going to refer to. But remember, this took place 1,000 years before Christ walked the earth and before he enters Jerusalem. This first event that we're going to look at quickly is a story of transition from one king to another, from David to Solomon. It was a time of great uncertainty, though, for the people of Israel. David was dying, and his time on earth had come to an end. His physical and mental abilities had declined severely, and he was totally bedridden and just about to die. And yet he still had not designated a successor. So one of his overly ambitious sons, Adonijah, saw his opportunity and he grabbed for it. He would seize the throne before any of his other brothers could. Now, Adonijah colluded with several of David's key advisors, who weren't Russians, by the way, and some priests to initiate a coronation ceremony for himself. David's totally sealed off in his bedchambers, completely unaware of what's taking place. But the prophet Nathan hears about this impending coronation, and he makes his way quickly to the palace of David with the news. Now, the backdrop to all of this is that David had previously promised Bathsheba with an oath that her son Solomon would succeed him. 
So these intrigues, this, this event, this story is repeated twice in the text of 1 Kings so that the reader will not miss the import of it. Once David hears of this grab for power by his son, he orders Nathan to take Solomon and coronate him as king immediately. Now, what is of interest to us at this point and what all Jews would have recognized is that this coronation was foreshadowing Jesus' ride into Jerusalem to offer himself as king. Looking at 1 Kings, you don't need to turn there, just listen. David speaks to his advisors, saying to Nathan and to others, Take with you the servants of your Lord, that's David, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, the royal mule of the king, and bring him down to the Gihon Spring. Let the priests and the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then he shall come and sit on my throne to be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler. So they went down and they had Solomon ride on David's mule and they brought him to the Gihon spring. And Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet. And all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy. And the earth shook from their noise. You see it? Clearly. As you can see on the map behind me, Solomon rode that royal mule. I forgot my pointer in my office. But you can see at the dotted line that follows, he's coming down from Bethpage down the Kidron Valley into the Gihon Spring. And Solomon walked that same path before him where he was anointed the king of Israel. 1,000 years later, Jesus reenacts that same event, climbing over the Mount of Olives on that colt, down the Kidron Valley and to the, to the Gihon Spring, where he offers himself to be the rightful king of Israel. Why? Because he was the son of David. You guys awake? Because he was the son of David. Ah, you guys are so weak. Is that what Trump would say? You guys are weak. Jesus riding atop an unridden, unridden colt reserved for a king, a royal mount of peace, not a white, a white stallion of war, makes his way and offers himself to be the king. However, however, understand, Jesus will someday ride that war horse into Jerusalem after he's conquered his enemies with his saints. Oh, we got some, got some little reaction out of you there. Good, you are awake. In Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, we read, And I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it called Faithful and True, and he who is judges in righteousness and wages war. His eyes are aflame, and his head, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that's you and me, by the way, and following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress, a fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, 
robe and on his thigh his name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of the Lord, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit upon them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. We win and they lose. Jesus rides that white war horse leading an army of those washed in the blood of the Lord and we defeat enemy. Satan, his enemy Satan. And we free not only the land of Israel but the world Now, Jesus is coming at that time in judgment of the world system. But at this time, he's coming as the Prince of Peace. He comes to the Jewish people as another son of David. And he offers himself as a humble servant who obeys his father's will to be their king. But you see, the problem is they weren't looking for that kind of Messiah. The Jews weren't seeking that kind of a humble king. They were seeking a militaristic, aggressive Messiah that would defeat the armies of Rome, their enemy. Oh, that's going to happen next time, not this time. Then he comes as the conquering king, carrying a sword and slaying the enemy. But this time he comes, offering peace through his shed blood. The next time King Jesus comes... He will establish his kingdom, as the book of Zechariah says, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So Matthew, by quoting Zechariah here, states or gives us a panoramic view, if you will, of the glorious history of the Messiah. From his coming to his ultimate victory and his kingdom. Now we see the parade that accompanied Jesus as he enters into the city, just as Solomon has experienced as I related to you in the quote from Zechariah. Looking at verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them and brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. The disciples do as they are instructed. You know, sometimes we're told to do stuff that we don't know why, right? These disciples didn't get it at the point at the point that they were told. But they go and they get the two animals. Now Luke does say that the people asked them why they were taking the animals, and they answered just as Jesus had instructed them, and there were no problems. The disciples then place their coats on top of the animals as saddles, and Jesus sits upon the colt. And he rode down the ridge that overlooks Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, into the Gihon Spring. He was accompanied by all of the pilgrims entering into the city for the Passover celebration. Who made up this parade? Well, we know from the text that this mass of people included uh, were those from the Galilee, from Bethany, from Bethpage, and just random citizenry from Jerusalem. When they heard all of the commotion going on in the city, they came out to see what it was all about, and they joined in the celebration. And in verse 8, we read that most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, while others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road as well. This was a very great crowd. It was impressive, not only in numbers, but in scope. 
The crowd wasn't just his disciples and a few passerbyers. No, the whole city came out to see this happening. Many joined the celebration, and they began to spread the palm branches and their coats on the ground in front of the king riding the colt. Now, this had been, had been done in the past, as I've quoted from the book of Sol- uh, about Solomon from 1 Kings, but it was also done in 2 Kings when Jehu came into the city and as well was coronated. This is kind of the red carpet treatment that you would give to someone, or it's akin to spreading roses in front of the bride as she makes her way to the altar. Obviously, this is what caused the event to be called Palm Sunday. Now, these Jews had all come to Jerusalem for one reason, and that was to celebrate the Passover and then the week, the Feast of Weeks, which follows it. Now, there are three actions in this royal procession that we see in verses 9 and beyond. Let's take a look at those quickly. First, we read the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed. So you had a crowd in front and behind him, and they were shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now the first thing that these people do in this royal possession is to sing songs from the Hallel. Those are the songs that are found in Psalm 113 to 118. This is what the Jewish pilgrims sang as they made their ascent up to the temple to worship God during these feast weeks. So, this passage is taken directly from Psalm 118, verse 25. And we notice that they came singing and shouting out in happiness and joy. Now, the word there, shouting, in the Greek is written as an imperfect tense verb. That means they kept on shouting. And they kept on shouting. They were saying Hosanna, which wasn't pictured in the, in the video. They kept on saying Hosanna again and again and again. It is the plea of God's people to the Lord to save them, to deliver them from their enemies. In a sense, they're pleading with Jesus as the Messiah to save them from the oppressor, Rome. Now, Hosanna is not a word that we know from the English. It's a transliteration brought directly into English, but as I said, it means to grant deliverance or to save us. Secondly, the crowd identifies Jesus as the son of David. That is by his messianic title. In Mark's gospel, we get a little bit further information that the crowd was shouting, Blessed is the coming of our kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They recognized that Jesus was the bona fide heir to the Davidic throne, since he was the son of David. Unfortunately, they didn't recognize him as he who else he was coming as. He was coming as the sacrificial son of Abraham. They knew and believed that the Messiah would come and restore the kingdom, but they missed the fact that he must redeem the people first. They anticipated his reign, but they overlooked his sacrifice. Now the third action by the people found in this text is that they worshipped him as the one who comes in the name of of the Lord. In other words, they recognized that he was a true representative of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they affirmed this by once again shouting again and again and again, Hosanna in the highest. They recognized that God dwells, the most high God dwells in the high heavens. 
Did you notice the absence of anybody from this event? You don't have any chief priests, no scribes, no Pharisees, no Herodians. You don't see any of those people here. Just the crowds of simple people celebrating him and praising him. You see, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they were off devising their evil plans to make him suffer and then to crucify him on a cross. You know, the same thing is kind of true today, isn't it? There's, there's one of two options when it comes to Jesus' people. Either love him or they hate him. It won't be long before this adoring crowd, however, turns against him. They will hail him one moment as king king and son of David, and the next they'll call for his crucifixion. Notice the two actions of the people from the city of Jerusalem as recorded in verse 10. As he entered into Jerusalem, all all of the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Who is this guy? I don't know who he is. Do you know who he is? So... The peasants from Galilee, from the outer regions, are praising him as the Messiah. But the city dwellers, they don't know who he is, and they miss this symbolism because it doesn't fit their expectations. It's not what they want. As I said before, they were anticipating a conquering Messiah, not a humble king riding on a court, a cult. Our liberals today seem to think the same way about Jesus. He's not the savior of mankind dying for their sins. He's a revolutionary like Che Guevara or Castro. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was not a revolutionary but a sacrificial lamb. Unfortunately, the shouts of Hosanna and the highest turn to crucify him. We see this in our culture as well. But notice, the text says, All the city was stirred. Nobody could miss this. Everybody heard about it. Everybody knew of this happening. This was no insignificant stirring as some theologians try to make it. Remember back in chapter 2 of Matthew? Remember when the Magi came to Jerusalem? They arrived in town and everybody was, was amazed because they asked them what they were in town for and they said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Remember? This upset Herod, and it says in the text there, all Jerusalem was troubled, the same word that's used here, stirred. A new potentate has come to town, and people take note. They were filled, stirred actually means to be shaken or caused extreme anxiety. And it's been brought over into English as the word seismic, shaking. So you get the idea the whole city is in an uproar, not like some try to paint this. The whole city was shaking, and this was caused by Donald Trump going into Hollywood, right? No. The people of Jerusalem didn't know what to make of this man. What's all this brouhaha over a a hick from Galilee? You see, they just didn't get it. Why? Because they were spiritually blind to Jesus' identity. They didn't want to see what was directly in front of them. If they had just looked at 1 Kings, looked at Jehu, and now looked at Jesus, they would understand. But Israel was blind spiritually. The religious leaders, they were to blame for this. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, scribes, you see they had robbed them of the truth of the word of God. They had replaced the truth of the word of God, these religious hucksters, with man-made traditions and rules. So the hick riding into town on a donkey was not a king to them, just some backwards preacher. He might fool the Galileans, but he's not fooling us. We notice this in verse 11. And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee? That's the answer to the question, who is this guy? First of all, they acknowledge that he's a prophet. Okay, yeah, he's... God might be using him to speak through us. And the backdrop to this is they would have had in mind John the Baptist. They recognized him as a prophet as well. But what did they do to John the Baptist? Cut off his head. But notice it says the prophet, not a prophet. The people saw Jesus as fulfilling a specific passage of Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 we read, Moses said to them that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your countrymen and you shall listen to him. In other words, they didn't think of Jesus as being the son of God come to take his throne as those who surrounded him in the immediate vicinity did. The wider group of people thought that he just might be a a prophet, maybe even the prophet that Moses spoke about. But do you remember what happened to John the Baptist? They killed him. He was just a man. That's what they're asserting really about Jesus here. He's just a man. They call him Jesus, his human name, from Nazareth in Galilee, his human location. He's not the Messiah. He's just another one of those pesky prophets. You know how I know? He's from Nazareth. And what comes out of Nazareth? Nothing good. That's what the scriptures say. Too bad these bozos have pinned all of their hopes on him. That's what they're thinking. Losers. Losers from Galilee. But I want you to remember, just a moment, let's go back just a couple of weeks. Do you remember when Jesus took the twelve up to Caesarea Philippi into the pan, uh, the grotto of pan? Remember that? Why did they walk up into Gentile territory and look at those pagan sites of worship? He asked them there, Who do the people say that I am? And what was the answer they gave him? You are John the Baptist, guy who gets beheaded. You're Elijah, or another one of the prophets. Nothing's changed then nor now. So let me ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a man, a good teacher? Is he a prophet? Islam says Jesus is a prophet. Or is he God come in the flesh to die for your sins? This is his official presentation of himself offering to be king. He is the rightful heir of the throne because he is a direct descendant and a son of David. But they reject him and they have him crucified by the Romans. Now, This was not unexpected for hundreds of years previously to this. Daniel prophesied that 69 weeks would go by. We can even count the days, and it's to the exact days by some people's accounting. 69 weeks pass, and Daniel says the Messiah will come and be cut off. Again, in Daniel 9, verse 26, we read, Then after 62 weeks, 
I should have said 62 weeks, I'm sorry. 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations and deter- are determined. If they had just known their Bible, if they had just known the word of God and believed it, they would have been prepared for his coming, but they were not. Let me ask you, do you know the scriptures? Are you prepared? Do you believe the word of God? I don't give a rip what others in Christendom are saying. My Jesus Christ is coming again in power and glory and is going to receive the church to himself in the rapture. All the other people are wrong because the Bible is clear about it. And then someday he's going to come back and he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives... And he's going to walk down the Kidron Valley and he's going to take possession as the rightful owner of and king and prophet of his temple. And there he will be coronated king. He's not king yet. That's where the liberals are wrong again. He will be king and he will sit and rule over the world from the nation of Israel for a thousand years. And thank God we'll be there and serve him in the mighty millennial kingdom. Praise God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sent our Lord Jesus humble, meek, compassionate, kind, loving to his people Israel to save them. But they rejected him. That opened the door for us, Lord. We are so grateful and happy. But now we await the conclusion as you return. Help us, Lord, to be prepared, to be knowledgeable, to understand the scriptures, and to live in this world godly as we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.